Hey, podcast listeners, it's Melissa. We got a little surprise for you this week. We're actually going to put on the feed an episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text that I was lucky enough to go and record with Vanessa and Casper recently. Uh, if you don't know Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, you should check it out. It's a great podcast. You'll hear it right after I'm done talking. And you should watch out for, for them coming over to Pottercast real soon. We'll be back next week. Have a great day. Chapter 29, The Dream. It comes down to this, said Hermione, rubbing her forehead. Either Mr. Crouch attacked Victor, or somebody else attacked both of them when Victor wasn't looking. It must have been Crouch, said Ron at once. That's why he was... I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Tekhile. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. This week, we have the honor of being joined by Melissa Anelli. She is the co-host of Pottercast. She is the inventor of LeakyCon, which Ariana and I are so excited to be going to this summer. She's the author of Harry, A History, and probably most importantly, she was the correct answer to a Jeopardy question. <laughs> Melissa, you would say that's the thing that you're taking to your grave, right? I'm I'm still holding out for the answer to the Jeopardy question. I've been mentioned on Jeopardy, which is almost as good. Basically the same. Basically the same. But yeah, let me tell you, literally nothing I have done in my life has made me seem famous to my family until I was mentioned on Jeopardy. Then That's it. There is no higher goal as far as they're concerned. Now I'm the <laughs> coolest I will ever be. Stop trying. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today. And we're excited to talk to you about some of what you do and your thoughts about Harry Potter. But first, we would love if you could tell us a story on the theme of chance. Sure. Um, Mostly when I think about chance, I'm thinking about taking a chance of not so much chance occurring to me, but me or my staff or the group of people that I've lucked into and uh, into working with now on our conventions and everything that we do, taking chances. So one of the biggest chances I took that paid off in a big way was when the fifth Harry Potter book had just come out. It was 2003 and Lizo Mazimbo, who was the CBBC announcer. He did most of the reporting for the CBBC around Harry Potter. He was to the legit BBC world what the Leaky Cauldron was to the fan world. And we were in touch a lot because I would confirm a story or he would confirm a story or we'd confer on whether we thought the latest crazy rumor was true or not. And they were doing a big book release at Royal Albert Hall to celebrate Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix coming out. And he said to me, you should come. And I was in my first job out of college. It was a terrible job. It was a hell job. It was the job that taught me how to not be a boss. And he said to me, you should come. You'll meet J.K. Rowling. And I started literally just laughing at him. I was like, that's sure. You know, nobody went out on assignment to cover a Harry Potter story at that time. I paid for it out of my very, very meager salary. And then I was able to ask Scholastic can I come and be press? And they were said, yeah, yeah, sure. Just let us know when you're there. However, when I got there, they, instead of putting me in the press pen, which is like a teeming horde, they brought me over to the place where they had put all the contest winners. So there I am standing with 10 to 20 American kids with their giant blue Order of the Phoenix books. They were all waiting to meet J.K. Rowling. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, I okay, well, maybe, maybe if I'm going to meet J.K. Rowling, I just start getting ready for that, thinking that she would just sign my book and that would be that. But when she came up, and it was very clear that she was going down the line meeting people, she came up to me and I said to myself, well, if I'm going to 
meet J.K. Rowling and embarrass myself in front of J.K. Rowling. Let's do this all the way. And I put my hand over my book. And I looked up at her and said, you know, Ms. Rowling, my name is Melissa Anelli. I, I work on a site called The Leaky Call." And she said, wait, The Leaky Cauldron. I love The Leaky Cauldron. And she lurched herself over the barrier to give me this huge hug. Lisa was standing there very, very smugly waiting with a camera. It was a very cute moment. But the thing that that taught me about Chance in that moment, not that it, it was a cool moment and I got to meet J.K. Rowling, she knew, she knew who the site was, that's all great. But that kind of validation for all the chances that we were taking doing the fan journalism we were doing, taking steps to be a community for fans, which didn't so much exist then the way it does now. All those things we knew were being supported now by the author. So when I took that chance to go to England, completely not believing it would end that way, it ended up fueling a lot of what Leaky and Leaky Khan and Leaky Cauldron have done over the years. Melissa, I love what you're saying because I see what you did in this exact moment of meeting Joel Rowling to be what you've allowed and encouraged fans of the Harry Potter universe to do in being in conversation with one another. There's an unabashed joy and enthusiasm and a willing to look a little silly now and then. And I think that's what I love about fandom is that there's there's no cynicism. There's no holding back about the fullness with which we want to engage with these conversations. There's a willingness to dive in all the way. And I think that's what your story has shown us. And I think that's what your work has given us all. So I, I want to thank you for that. That makes me feel so incredible. I, In the middle of all this, in the middle of I'm just out of college and I just love this thing so much and I can't stop. And now that it's been nearly 20 years or it's been 17 years or so since I started in this fandom, I've sort of been reflecting on this a bit and what this has all been. And I actually just gave a TED Talk about the value of not playing it cool and the importance of letting those little parts of yourself flare up where you can't stop yourself from being a little silly, being a little geeky. It's not always appropriate, but if you never let those moments happen, if you don't see what they're saying about you, I think you can lose a lot of really important and exciting mm. things that you could find. Like I found myself in Harry Potter. I found what I wanted to do with my life. It's really, yeah. What I love about the Harry Potter fandom is that it is like this encouraging place of so much nodding there's just an earnestness and supportiveness. I mean, like, I think that we are very much the beneficiaries of and that, like, we have the most generous listeners in the world. We will say something like, not great. And they'll be like, I'm sure you had great intentions, but <laughs> and, like teaching us with such a warm heart. There's just such a generosity of spirit. Isn't it great? I've learned so unbelievably much through I mean, everything over these years, but especially LeakyCon. LeakyCon started in 2009 and has grown exponentially. And it's um, th this audience has now, it's now self-feeding, right? It's whatever I was doing in that time was, was feeding off the energy of what the Harry Potter fandom brought, which was an unabashed need to, to be good, be good in the world, be nice to other people, plea for tolerance and civility and equality. And all those things are like born out in the real world. I mean, the HP Alliance is a great example, you know. Totally, totally. So, Melissa, tell us a little bit about LeakyCon. Ariana and I will be there in August, but this is going to be our first time there. Tell us and all of our listeners, like, what is the thing that's most awesome about LeakyCon? Well, first of all, for those who don't know, LeakyCon is a Harry Potter convention. It, this year's will be the biggest ever 
Harry Potter convention. We, we, we cannot believe it sold out in a day. We don't even know how that happened, but it's going to be incredible. We started it in 2009 because we felt like the fandom really had something to say about how our Harry Potter festival should be run. And so... Some of the things that happen at LeakyCon, one of some of the big tentpole things, obviously we bring a bunch of the people involved in the films and people who have worked on the books out to talk about it and to offer their experience. You can also do the, the typical convention, um, you know, getting autographs and, and photographs and things like that. We also have Wizard Rock, uh, which we've had some pretty raucous concerts. At one of them, Ivana Lynch strapped on a bass guitar and played Smells Like Harry Potter with Harry and the Potters, and it was... <laughs> <laughs> complete insanity. I can't even. It was one of the best moments of LeakyCon history. Um, we have skits and sketches. We have live podcasts. We have a marketplace where you can buy a ton of things. There's Quidditch. You can submit your own programming and do your own panel on why we sort too soon or whatever it is that's on your mind. It is a festival of everything good about Harry Potter and the Harry Potter community most specifically. It is sold out so I feel re- I feel really bad being like it's awesome you can't be there. But if you want to attend another one we are going to be making announcements pretty soon about when the next couple of ones are coming and next year's is going to be our 10th year doing it. Wow. Well, Melissa, thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast, and you were one of the early supporters of this project, and we're just so grateful to you. And we really want to encourage everyone to go out and buy Melissa's book. It's called Harry, A History. And, oh, who wrote the foreword to that? Is J.K. Rowling. Oh, J.K. Rowling Oh, I've heard of her. I've heard of her. She's an up-and-coming young writer (laughs) that I think we should all support by buying Melissa's book. Thanks again so much, Melissa. Glad Thank to have you, you guys. And what you're doing is really, really cool. Vanessa, before we dig into that theme of chance, let's remind ourselves what happened in this chapter with our 30-second recap. Okay, I'm going to just count myself in. On my mark, get my set, go. So they are trying to make sense of what happened with Crouch, and um, they decide that they want to talk to Moody, but they're like, we shouldn't talk to Moody too early in the morning because he'll probably just, like, kill us. And they go up to the Owlery in the meantime to write a letter to Sirius, and they run into friend George, and they overhear friend George talking about blackmailing someone, and they're like, that's probably not a good idea. And then they go and talk to Moody, and Moody's like, I have the Marauder's map, and I have no idea what happened. You're as good as mine. And then... um, they um, keep talking about it, and then they go up to Dumbledore's office, and it's like, I hear uh, Harry through the door. I just missed one or two small things. I love that the chapter is literally called The Dream. <laughs> what are you talking about? Let me fill in the gaps. That's how we do this. I just forgot the thing that is the reason why Harry goes to Dumbledore's office. I, You know what it is? It's because you counted yourself in. <laughs> Women shouldn't try to be independent. Lesson learned. On your mark, get set, go. So Harry has a dream. What? <laughs> In the midst of um, divination, it's very warm, and there's a little buzzing sound because there's some sort of bug by the window. And he opens the window a little bit, and um, then suddenly his scar starts really hurting, and he sees Voldemort, and Voldemort is like flying and arrives, and it's kind of like an owl, and then um, is screaming at Wormtail, and it's like, oh, you failed, but luckily you don't have to die because Harry Potter's going to die, and it's all fine. My favorite moment, I have to say, is when Moody says, you can be an aura, you can be an aura. <laughs> Except Ron. <laughs> uh, it it seems as though the British and American versions of these books are very different because there's no dream in my version of the chapter. It's just missing completely. It's just missing. He just goes up to Dumbledore's <laughs> office for no reason. So Casper, 
Melissa got us on to a great start with this theme of chance. And one of the distinctions that I appreciated that she made was that there is chance as in luck, and then there's chances in taking a chance, taking mm. a risk, right? So luck and risk seem to be two different kinds of chance. And I think that a place where we see that is with Fred and George. So Fred and George took a big chance by betting that Bulgaria would get the snitch, but Ireland would win. They put all their money on it. They put all of their money on it. And so that is chance in terms of a risk. And then they thought that that risk was going to have the payoff of being their chance, of being their big opportunity to have enough money to invest in themselves. And what's interesting to me is the desperate acts that they feel compelled to take in order to, like, cash in on that chance. I think I, at a certain point, would sort of leave well enough alone and walk away and say, that is sunk cost. Shame on him for taking that bet and not being able to pay us back. But they, I don't know what it is if there's something so addicting about sort of the gambling aspect of it, of the taking the risk and expecting it to be this big opportunity that they just can't let it go. And they're about to blackmail a high-ranking ministry official. And I feel like you can even see in the dialogue between the two Weasley twins, Fred and George are going back and forth saying, yeah, but that would be blackmail. Well, how else are we going to do it? So it's like an internal monologue that's externalized between the two of them of how we sit with that kind of risk tolerance. But I do feel like the two chances that you're pointing to are really interesting to put side by side because one of them is about, okay, I'm investing this small bit and there might be a really big reward. But the loss is, okay, I lose the money. That's the the worst thing that can happen. In this case with blackmail, the reward might be very, very big because I'm going to get paid the money I'm actually owed. But the loss is way more serious because they could go to jail. And Hermione says that this isn't just breaking school rules. This could be much more serious. So I feel like if you imagine like a tree of chance, the branches are pretty the same, but the roots of what could happen badly are growing massively. And it, it feels like that's a different kind of chance. Right. It is about sort of like risk mitigation, right? I've done all sorts of weird things, like I've jumped out of an airplane and I've... I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. I've gone skydiving, bungee jumping. I've done all of that. And they are things that don't feel risky to me. I'm like, thousands of people do this all the time. I am at greater risk in the car driving there than I am actually jumping out of the airplane. My hands are literally clammy just thinking about it. Well, you've had a big fall in your life. So it's interesting the things that feel chancy to us, like jumping out of an airplane. I'm wondering what that feeling is, right? Is it just novelty that makes jumping out of an airplane feel chancier, riskier than driving to the drop-off point? Yeah, I'm thinking about how the twins are going from one risky behavior of like disrupting a classroom or doing something that breaks the rules in Hogwarts to this action, which is way more serious in terms of essentially blackmailing a government official. And Hermione points that out, like this is not the same thing. But I think they've fallen into this trap of like, oh, it's just testing the boundaries again or like we're doing something on the sly, but it always works out. And we kind of make that false equivalent between like, walking while texting and driving while texting. Like, it's not that much of a difference, right? It's just three seconds and I'm totally in control when the consequences of what they're doing are, like, incomparable. Yeah, and there's something about taking chances where you build up your tolerance Mm -hmm. for it. The first time that I jumped into cold water, I was like, what the heck am I doing? (laughs) And then you teach yourself. You're like, oh, you get used to it. And, like, worst case scenario, your toes are cold for an hour. 
And Fred and George have sort of taught themselves that, that, oh, so like what happens? Filch yells at you and it's fine. And Hermione is like, nope, abort. This is not true, right? It would be like if I was like, no, 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 I've gotten used to cold water. I'm going to swim in, uh, you know, across the channel and I don't need a wetsuit. I'm used to it. It's like, no, that is something totally different. Totally. I think that scale of the impact is really important. And it's easy to still make mistakes. Like the trio is really good at referring to Sirius as snuffles in conversation. There's no awkwardness around that. They just say snuffles straight out. But then when Sirius writes a letter, he still signs the letter serious. And you're like, dude, come on, this the scales are way more dangerous. But if you're practiced in just signing a letter serious, and this note was probably written in haste, he's forgotten that he even needs a code name because he's on his own in his cave, chilling with Bugbeak. It's so easy to slip back into those old behaviors that are no longer appropriate for the situation that you're in. The other place to talk about chance, I think, is actually we have two weeks in a row, the word that we're looking at as the theme actually appears in the text. And this time it's Sirius in his letter writing to Harry saying, your name didn't get into the goblet of fire by accident. If someone is trying to attack you, they're on their last chance. So I was thinking about how we think about what a chance is, because Sirius is framing this as it's their last chance. Whoever's trying to attack you has had all year, wherever they are. When in actual fact, according to Barty Crouch Jr.'s plans, this is the first chance that he's having because it's all about transporting Harry to Voldemort. It's not about killing him on the Hogwarts grounds. And it made me think about, you know, so often if if we failed at something, we might be like, oh, it's never going to work out. You that know, was my big chance. That was my big chance and I blew it or they didn't choose me or, or I, you know, I failed in some way. When in actual fact, we have no idea what the long-term story is going to be. And I have so many moments where I look back in my life and I'm like, thank goodness that that happened. You know, like I had my fall, which gave me that fear of heights. And I ended up at home for three months. And it meant that I got to spend way more time with my youngest sister, who I had hardly lived with. She was 12 when I left home. And so there's just entire different perspectives on experiences that we've had when we give it time. And so just thinking about we shouldn't pass off chances as being the last chance too quickly. So I just hate the word chance. <laughs> this is and it's like maybe the opposite of what Melissa was saying, but like I think everything was chance and I think that this is like very much how I was raised. Mm. My grandfather, they got up one morning in Auschwitz and everyone in his bunker was lined up and they asked for a volunteer to go to the mailroom and my grandfather volunteered and he says that he did it like this could kill me, but like it all felt so arbitrary to him. And he got back that night and his whole bunker had been sent to the gas chambers. And that is why I exist, right? Because he like volunteered for the mailroom. And I just think it's all chance. You're born, who you're born to is chance. And at what stage in their life and how healthy they are in their financial situation and Everything seems so arbitrary to me, which is why I think storytelling is so important, because I think that what's up to us is the stories that we tell ourselves mm -hmm. about those different chances. Mm -hmm. But I just think everything is a chance. It seems the height of hubris to me to pretend to have any ideas to why things happen. I think you're so right, Vanessa. There's so many things in our lives where you just don't you don't have control, you don't have authority or, or the chance to create your circumstance. Absolutely. And I do think this is where the distinction that Melissa made is helpful, that there are moments where we can choose. We don't know what's going to happen. And your grandfather said, I'm going to volunteer for the mailroom. 
Who knows what that might have meant? And so maybe there's there's a decision capacity without any sort of guarantee about what that means. But there are decisions that we get to make. Yeah, I just, I guess I feel like someone who's been humbled by so many positive chances that I don't really feel comfortable taking credit for much. So Casper, one of the places that I see random things from when we're young coming to fruition is in the fact that Voldemort went after Harry and not Neville, right? So Harry, because of this, has this connection to Voldemort of the scar. And that is by complete chance that he was born on this certain day and that Voldemort, as I said, decided to go after him and not Neville for whatever reason. And Harry, because of that one chance thing, is having a specific dream on a specific day. And I think that these are the kinds of conclusions that in literature we can make sense of, but that we can never even begin to make sense of in our own lives. Mm. I think I really admire Harry that he doesn't resist the fact that it was this freak thing, this chance thing that happened to him when he was young. He doesn't like push away from it. He seems to mostly accept it and be like, this is the dream I had. I have to go talk to Dumbledore. Yeah, I love that comparison between literature and our lives and that by its essence, literature is a storytelling mechanism. While our lives, it's much less easy to find those through lines. And when we don't find them and we feel like we're lost or we're stuck, it's a very debilitating experience. And so I feel like Harry is actually incredibly resilient in not falling into the chosen one narrative, as you're saying. Like, you know, he's saying, like, I'm just a guy. Granted, I'm great at Quidditch. But, like, I'm not going to buy into that story that the world is offering me. And even in this moment, Trelawney is like, let me help you. You know, let let me make meaning of this experience in front of the whole classroom. And he's like, no, I don't want to engage with that. The key thing is that I think I know something about Voldemort's state of being right now. And it has implications not only for me, but for many other people. My immediate task is to go and find Dumbledore. He even sacrifices his own well-being because he says he's going to go to the hospital wing and he doesn't. Well, I also think that it is a great model for leadership, Mm. right? Because you want your leader to take responsibility for the authority that they have that other people don't. You don't want a leader who so profoundly is like, I'm one of you, that they don't take charge and that they don't take responsibility of the things that they are responsible for. You want a leader who says the buck stops with me and if we fail, it's on me. But you also don't want a leader with a false sense of authority and who's (laughs) like, I did all of this on my own. None of you even matter. And Harry seems to be in that sweet spot. He seems to be saying, it is completely random that this happened to me. I don't have any special talents because of this connection that I have with Voldemort. And oh my God, now I have information because of this thing that makes me famous that I have to act on because the buck stops with me on that. And he's really modeling this middle way for us that I find very inspiring and grounding. Yeah. Do you know what it reminds me of? This is a slightly perhaps sad turn, but When tragedy strikes in our lives, one of the reactions that will often happen is, why me? And we're looking for a story to tell ourselves to make sense of the diagnosis of the accident. But also on the the flip side, like, why did I win the lottery? Or why was I selected in this audition? Or whatever it is. And it's so easy to fall into a narrative about ourselves that is about our supremacy, or it is about our inner brokenness, right? And I think actually what I'm really taking away from this conversation is that To stay in the place where we can say it's just chance is maybe the most healthy thing we can do with the best things and the worst things that happen to us. To say it's just chance 
but what am I going to do about the new information? Oh, I love that. And that's what Harry does here. Yep. It's just chance that I'm the one who had that dream, but I had the dream. So what am I going to do about it? It's time for our spiritual practice, and we're going to do Lectio again. And so four steps of reading. Vanessa, I'm going to choose a passage at random from the dream. Here we go. Use the British version with the plot point about that dream. It sounds really juicy. The gargoyle remained immovable. How about that? The gargoyle remained immovable. So we'll start with our first layer of reading, which is just to understand what's happening in the narrative. Vanessa, where are we in the story? So Harry has just had his dream in Trelawney's classroom, and he says, I'm going to go see Madame Pomfrey. And instead, he goes to Dumbledore's office and has to say a password to get in there. And he tries the password from like years ago when he was there last. And the gargoyle is like, nope, that's not the password, Harry. I love that so much of the rest of the castle has paintings that offer the password and there's more kind of interaction, right? The Gryffindor common room kind of door entryway. She has real conversations with you and she'll tease you if you don't know it. And this gargoyle in itself will never respond verbally. And like there's an extra layer of protection somehow, Mm -hmm. I feel. I'm already moving on to step two. Well, why don't you tell us what step two is? (laughs) So step two is to think allegorically about this sentence. So what are the images or the words or the stories? What things from our culture does this sentence remind us of? The gargoyle remained immovable. I mean, the first thing that strikes me is just that word gargoyle. Mm -hmm. Um, It makes me think of the kind of grand Gothic cathedrals. It paints a picture of what Hogwarts is as a physical space. Gargoyles as, you know, often frightening images that are there to warn off evil spirits. And so, yeah, again, it adds that defensive layer to Dumbledore's office. It's also, I mean, it's decorative. So it means that effort was put into creating a space with a certain culture or a certain look or a certain feeling. But I also am really interested in the word immovable. And I was just reminded of my favorite musical, The Unsinkable Molly Brown. I don't know that musical. You don't know Unsinkable Molly Brown? Well, she's a, a real historic person in the United States. And she was married to a, like, gold mogul in Colorado And as a baby, she was put on the Colorado River to, like, drown. And she didn't drown. And so she was known as the unsinkable Molly Brown for her entire life. She became this, like, bastion of nouveau riche Denver life. And then she was on the Titanic. (gasps) And she was one of the survivors of the Titanic. But she already had the reputation of being the unsinkable Molly Brown. I mean, there's a musical with Debbie Reynolds as Molly. And it's fantastic. But it's only someone who has tried to be drowned that you would think of calling unsinkable, right? Mm. Like this gargoyle is immovable because it's meant to be moved to let people in. So you only notice that something is un or im or whatever, you know, prefix is necessary when the purpose of it is something else. I love that. And that's exactly where Harry finds himself, right? He's trying to get this looming gargoyle to open and it remains immovable. But of course it is movable. He moves it in just a few sentences. (laughs) Ooh, juicy. Okay, let us go to stage three, which is really starting to think about what does this sentence evoke from our own experience? I'll read it one more time. The gargoyle remained immovable. You know what I'm really struck by? 
I'm thinking a lot about the future at the moment, where I might want to settle down and live and all of those kind of questions. So this time the, the word remained struck me. And I'm just thinking about what it means to remain in a place. I'm thinking especially about looking at the teachers at Hogwarts who remain, even when the headmasters change, that there are so many things in our external context that can change. And to remain is this is actually a very generous thing. I don't know, there's something about commitment and there's something about solidity and about investing in a place and believing, even when it is imperfect, that it can become more than what it is. There's something about remaining that's really touching. And, and the moments in my own life when I have stayed with a friendship that was going through a rough period, or if I've stayed with a project that wasn't going well, but then was able to turn around, like there's an extra sweetness to an eventual blossoming if you've remained through a tough time. I mean, goodness, getting through this winter in Boston, I feel <laughs> feels like we've remained. <laughs> How about you, Vanessa? The gargoyle remained immovable. What it reminded me of in my life is one of my first swimming lessons, which is one of my first memories. I was like three or four years old. My swimming teacher's name was Becky. And Miss Becky was known to be a really mean but, like, great swimming instructor. And it was the first time that we were, like, kicking away from the wall and just going to sort of, like, be in the middle of the pool. And she said that if we waved our hand, that would be communicating to her that we were in distress and she would grab us. And I freaked out halfway through the pool. And so I, like, waved my hand and she grabbed me. And she said to me, you weren't actually in danger. You were just scared that you were. Mm. And you were testing me. And I remember I was so mad. Right? She accused me of testing her to see whether or not she would come when I called her. And I actually don't think she was wrong. I think I was like, are you immovable? Like, are you someone who keeps your promises? Because if you are someone who keeps your promises, then I'll learn how to swim in your pool. And if you're not someone who keeps your promises, then I don't feel safe to, like, yeah. try things here. And I think that we have to prove to each other that we're immovable. I think that Harry only feels comfortable sharing secrets inside Dumbledore's office because he knows that a gargoyle is standing between him and the outside world. Like... I think that being steadfast is something that should be honored and that needs to be proven. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it makes it all the more meaningful in book six when some of that goes away for Harry. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. He feels so abandoned by Dumbledore later. Yeah. And Dumbledore has been like the gargoyle. He's been in a positive way, in a movable presence. And so when he removes himself... yeah. Everything changes. Yeah. So the final step is to think about what the text may be asking of us. Are we inspired to think of an action or a new commitment or a, a different way of looking at the world because of the work that we've done with these four words? The gargoyle remained immovable. What I'm struck by is, is this sense of something from history staying with us over time. And we've, we've touched on it a number of times, but the gargoyle as a in some way, historic artifact, staying with us, remaining with us, and being an unmovable presence, a consistent something in our lives. And I think we talk so much about innovation and disruption in, in this current climate around careers and, and work that we might be doing and social change, but there are things that are worth holding onto. And so I'm invited to think about what of tradition do I want to keep hold of? 
you know, we do that a little bit with this podcast of keeping hold of some religious practices like like Divina itself. And I, I want to search a little harder. What other traditions or practices have served people well? And what, what can I take with me? How about you, Vanessa? Casper, I feel called to like spending a week by myself. <laughs> Immovable, remaining beyond the grasp of people. Yeah, I really do. I feel so tired right now, yeah. like emotionally exhausted that I feel immovable. And I think that, you know, Dante's Inferno, one of the things that all the levels of hell have in common is that once you go to hell, you are immovable. It is the greatest punishment that you can offer to someone that they can no longer move through the world. And I feel immovable right now. Like I'm at capacity and I feel like I have to go away to unstick myself. Mm. This week's voicemail is from G. Quion. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. My name is G, and I'm from Australia, and I've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text for a long time. I've been reading Harry Potter for an even longer time. My mother bought me the first book when I was five, and now I'm 22. Reading through Goblet of Fire with the podcast has made me remember that this book really marks the death of childhood for Harry, or at least it's the start of his inevitable transition from childhood to adulthood. I'm in a weird transitional phase of life too. I'm waiting to get on a plane to Berlin to start a new life and it's all very scary and exciting. I am very lucky and privileged to go of course, but I think we don't talk enough about the grief of losing your childhood. My hometown is very Privet Drive-esque, but I'll still miss it when I'm away and I know I'll be homesick. The last of our family dogs died a couple of weeks ago, and we first took her home when I was seven, so for the first time in living memory, I have to figure out how to live my life without my puppy. Harry goes through many of these transitions, especially in the last few books. He loses Hogwarts as a home, he loses a lot of father figures and mentors, he loses his own childhood pet, and although at the end of the series Harry is a better person and the world is a better place, I really feel like the books really take the time to process the grief and loss that is inevitably part of growing up. I feel less pressure to constantly and ostentatiously demonstrate my excitement and gratitude and to spend some time processing the loss and grief of change. So I would just like to bless everyone who is going through their own fantasy Bildungsroman narrative and to hope that they have the courage to process the grief and loss as well as the excitement and joy of growing up. Auf Wiederhören! Gee, I love that you're throwing in some German here. Auf Wiederhören, Bildungsroman. This is fabulous. And I absolutely love that you're giving yourself that time and space. And I think it's so easy for us to just get wrapped up in the busyness of every day. And just this morning, I sat for 20 minutes just on my meditation cushion. And for the last couple of days, I'd been like doing two minutes and five minutes. And just to actually make time to sit for 20, I've noticed the difference all day already. So amen to that blessing. Thank you so much. Also, I'm so sorry about your dog. Casper, we now have the chance to each offer a blessing to a character. I'm going to offer a blessing for Trelawney, who likes to keep her classroom warm. As someone who is often cold and often just heats people out of places, I would like to say that I think that furniture is designed for men. Offices are often air-conditioned for men. And I am tired of things being too big and too cold for me and good for you. A blessing to cold, short women everywhere. And the patriarchy one degree at a time. 
You, Casper, who would you like to bless this week? My blessing is for Harry. We've seen him endure these intense experiences when he's sleeping or, you know, when he's suddenly struck by one of these visions or dreams more and more frequently as the, as the books develop. And at first, it was this overwhelming, debilitating experience that he had no idea how to respond to, whether to tell people. And I think we're seeing Harry learn how to engage his own experience more and more skillfully. And, you know, that might happen to us in a recurring injury, or it might happen to us with, you know, suddenly overwhelming feeling of sadness. And so for anyone who's kind of managing those moments of just sudden unexpected pain or trauma or sadness, and is able to slowly but surely find some way in which to respond to them, I just find that extraordinary. Like, I would just be crying on the floor. I, I don't know how he does it. So a blessing for Harry. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook and leave us a review on iTunes or send us a two-minute voicemail to harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 30, The Pensive, through the theme of comfort. This episode was produced by Ariana Nedelman, by me, Casper Terkyle, and the fabulous Vanessa Zoltan. Mm. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we are part of the Panoply Network, where you can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. This week, we would like to offer a special thanks to Melissa Anelli. We would like to thank G. Quion for her wonderful voicemail, Rebecca and Charlie Ledley, Julia Argy, and Stephanie Paulsell. Thank you so much, and we will talk to you next week. Bye, everyone. I'm so tired. I don't feel called to anything. I'm like, nothing. Everybody leave me alone. I don't want to learn and grow anymore. Great. Ugh.